This is Know It All, the ABCs of Education, a platform of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC, where we empower our listeners with insightful information about equity in education. Welcome to Know It All, the ABCs of Education. I am your host, Allison R. Brown, and I am a civil rights attorney with a focus on equity in public education. Listen, remember to listen to Know It All, the ABCs of Education, every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern or at any time from your computer at blogtalkradio.com. I am your host, Allison R. Brown, um, and I want you to keep up with me on my website at allisonbrownconsulting.com and be sure to follow Know It All at blogtalkradio.com. If you're tweeting, follow me at Allison R. Brown and tweet about the show with the hashtag KnowItAllABC. Today, we are talking about poverty, and we are giving back the racial bribe to talk about poverty. I'm so excited to welcome to the show Dr. Deborah Hicks, Dr. Ivory Tolson, and Dr. Paul Gorski. Today, our one-year anniversary of Know-It-All, the ABCs of Education. We began a year ago with a show about sequestration and the fiscal cliff and its effects on education, and today we're talking about poverty, particularly for our nation's children. So let's, let me introduce quickly our guests so that we can get right into the conversation because I, I think this is a really important topic. Uh, and we've got expertise here at the table today, and I want to make sure that we delve into this. Um, Dr. Hicks is the author of the wonderful book, The Road Out, A Teacher's Odyssey in Poor America, in which she chronicles the lives of four girls growing up poor in Cincinnati. Dr. Hicks directs the Bass, the Bass Connections Group to focus on education and economic inequality in Appalachia out of Duke University, and she is the founding director of PAGE, a partnership supporting educational opportunity for girls and young women in Appalachia. Dr. Ivory Tolson was recently appointed, appointed Deputy Director of the White House Initiative on Historically Black Colleges and Universities. Prior to that, Dr. Tolson was an Associate Professor at my beloved Howard University, Senior Research Analyst for the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation, for whom he wrote, Breaking Barriers, Plotting the Path to Academic Success for School-Age African-American Males. He has been Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Negro Education and Contributing Education Editor for The Root, where he debunked some of the most pervasive myths about African Americans in his Show Me the Numbers column. I'm hoping that Dr. Tolson will be able to join us shortly. I know that he's running a little behind. Dr. Paul Gorski is an assistant professor of education at George Mason University in Virginia. He is also founder of EdChange, a coalition of educators and activists who develop free social justice resources for educators and activists. With specialties in multicultural education and social justice, Dr. Gorski has taught many a teacher and consulted with community and educational organizations all over the world on equity and social justice concerns. His latest book is Reaching and Teaching Students in Poverty, Strategies for Erasing the Opportunity Gap. I am honored to have you here today. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Allison. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, great to be here. So today we are giving back the racial bribe. I want to talk about that for a little bit. I want to just read a piece from Michelle Alexander's seminal work, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness, in which she talks about how we have all been duped by this racial bribe. 
Uh, in this, she talks about affirmative action as a part of that racial bribe and how um, desegregation played a key role and was a key construct in developing the racial bribe. As she says, as civil rights lawyers unveiled plans to desegregate public schools, it was poor and working class whites who were expected to bear the burden of this profound social adjustment, even though many of them were as desperate for up upward social mobility and quality education as African Americans. The majority of Southern whites were better off than Southern blacks, but they were not affluent or well-educated by any means. They were semi-literate with less than 12 years of schooling. Only a tiny minority of whites were affluent and well-educated. They stood far apart from the rest of the whites and virtually all blacks. What lower-class whites did have was what Du Bois described as the public and psychological wage paid to white workers who depended on their status and privileges as whites to compensate for low pay and harsh working conditions. Time and time again, poor and working-class whites were persuaded to choose their racial status interests over their common economic interests with blacks resulting in the emergence of new caste systems that only marginally benefited whites but were devastating for African Americans. And then she says, in retrospect, it seems clear that nothing could have been more important in the 1970s and 1980s than finding a way to create a durable, interracial, bottom-up coalition for social and economic justice to ensure that another caste system did not emerge from the ashes of Jim Crow. Priority should have been given to figuring out some way for poor and working class whites to feel as though they had a stake, some tangible interest in the nation's integrated racial order. Nothing in the Brown versus Board of Education opinion or in the subsequent legal strategy made clear that segregation had afforded elites a crucial means of exercising social control over poor and working class whites as well as blacks. The southern white elite, whether planters or industrialists, had successfully endeavored to make all whites think in racial rather than class terms, predictably leading whites to experience desegregation, as Derek Bell put it, as a net loss. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about it. Ivory, I, I want to start with you. Thank you for joining us this morning. Yeah, thank you for having me. So will you talk about what is the racial bribe and, and how do we start to give it back? Hmm. Yeah, complicated question. Uh, I think that we need to, well, in, in the age that we're living in right now where there's uh, increased multiculturalism, uh, the society is getting more diverse, uh, the uh, younger population looks a lot different than the older population. Uh, I think that we need to really think about what what race means in a in a different way. Uh, just recently, I looked at data related to immigrant populations in the United States, and just to see which ones are doing uh, better in academically. And it surprised a lot of people to know that uh, Nigerians were among the most well-educated and most elite group of immigrants in in the United States, uh, because that's not the way that. You know, we, we haven't been primed to look at Nigerians as a successful population because we're, we so often look at the black population as a whole as a, a group that, that struggles in a lot of areas. Uh, so, mm -hmm. and, and, and I, I say that, and, and also there's a lot of Asian populations, you know, like, like um, Cambodians and Laotians uh, were among the, 
the the immigrant populations that need the the most social support in society. Uh, so I think the the conversation about race has confused us in a lot of ways, but it it also helps us to look at at issues related to um, you know what certain groups need. Um, mm-hmm. So one of the things that we need to uh, you know, as we look at racial differences, we need to make sure that we only look at racial differences in the context of understanding the impact of racial discrimination and oppression, not to try to understand ourselves better. So for the black population, if you want to understand the black population, looking within the black population and not comparing them to other groups is the way to go. But if you want to want to understand racism and oppression, then you make comparisons. Mhm. Mhm. You know, uh, Deborah, I read your mm-hmm. book, The Road Out: A Teacher's Odyssey in Poor America, and it rang so familiar to me. The stories mm-hmm. of the girls and how their families had all migrated from the Appalachian Mountains in search of better employment opportunities in the form of of industrial work that for a while Mm -hmm. produced a thriving and happy community with cultural norms and proud Mm -hmm. preservation of heritage. That industry has since dried up, leaving behind cities and communities that are are, uh, withered and broken from lack of resources and from broken mindsets about the people who live there still. And Mm -hmm. this this is a story that is so familiar to me and my African-American family who were part of the Great Migration from Mississippi mm-hmm. to Indiana and is also familiar to so many other African-American families, too. You, talk, you start with your own story and you really mm-hmm. um, kind of lace your own personal journey throughout the book. Will you talk about your journey, your personal sure. journey, the collective journey of the girls in your book? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, I mean, I grew up as a working, I grew up as a white working class girl in Appalachia, and um, I was the first in my family to go to college, and it was a really, really tough road for me. I just, um, I didn't know what I was doing, and I had no money, I had no knowledge, I had very little opportunity, and I would say I kind of just scrounged my way into college and um, left home when I was 17 to be the first person to go on to to college and and then I um, ended up becoming an educator and and heading um, at one point um, heading to Cincinnati for a job at the University of Cincinnati in the education department there and that's where I um, discovered this um, community in inner city Cincinnati that had interesting um, echoes of my own childhood. It was an urban Appalachian community. As you said, Allison, there was a huge um, migration of Appalachian people in the post-war decades up into Midwestern cities to find work. And that's where I um, discovered this one community in Cincinnati of Appalachian people. Mm-hmm. And, and talk about the girls and, and their their collective journey through what now is a devastated community. It's uh, it's a fascinating story, and it's a really sad story that, um, it's like you were saying, this community that I discovered in Cincinnati is called Lower Price Hill, and it is a, um, it's right smack in you know, the, the middle of the downtown or the urban part of Cincinnati. And um, at one point in the post-war decades, it was a 
viable working class, you know, blue collar community. People could find jobs and there were factories and there were warehouses and people could, people moving up from the southern mountains could find, you know, viable, sustainable jobs in this community. And then when the manufacturing base dropped out of the U.S. economy in the 70s and 80s and 90s, those jobs just disappeared. And now the community that I wrote about in my memoir, The Road Out, is basically it feels when you're driving like a ghost town. The old factories and warehouses are empty and boarded up and the windows are all boarded up and it really is very um, sad looking. And I ended up... um, going to a local public school in this community and and I'd gotten and gotten a, a doctorate in education after a, a long journey of my own becoming an educator and going into college and going to grad school and when I discovered this community in Cincinnati I went to the local public school and I said um can I teach um in your school um can I volunteer as a teacher and get to know some of the issues that y'all you know you all are struggling struggling with and this public school very graciously said yes we'd love to have you so I began teaching um in a second grade and and as a volunteer teacher at the school met a group of girls um who ended up being my students for the next four years of their lives at that time they were um in second grade and um I ended up forming this special um, after-school and summer class for girls that focused kind of on reading literature and talking about the girls' lives. And through that class, um, got to know seven um, urban Appalachian girls really well, and we formed this kind of, if you want to call it sisterhood, a community, a class of, of girls that met for the next four years of their lives. And these were girls who were um, growing up in... Extreme poverty. There, at the the time that I was working in Cincinnati, working in this community, the community um, had a poverty rate of 56%, which is very, very high. It's um, that would fit the definition of you know concentrated urban poverty or people call ghetto poverty. Um, and yet, a distinctive attribute of this of the girls' community was that it was a predominantly white community. It was folks who had moved up from the Appalachian Mountains and settled in this little, almost like Appalachian enclave of basically um, poor whites, poor and working class whites. And I think just um, kind of um, building on what um, Dr. Tolson just talked about, when you're looking at the community of whites, people think of whites as one one group, but they're a very, very diverse group. And when you infuse the variable of social class into the very large group of whites and you look at the wide diversity among white people in America, this group was one of the most disadvantaged of white people um, anywhere in the United States. Mm-hmm. So, Paul, how do, we, how do we do this? How do we form meaningful, multicultural, multiracial alliances with one another rather than, you know, fighting over scraps? Well, you know, I think part of it is about uh, deepening our, our consciousness about the, the complexity of these issues and part of the trick and um you know I, I think the the racial bribe is is a piece of this 
part of the trick is uh, having, uh, you know, uh, people who basically are share a lot of traits socioeconomically, share a lot of uh, challenges uh, to be fighting over each other and, the, and the, to be fighting over um, issues like uh, race and and uh, and uh, gun control and, and, you know, whatever else. Uh, and, you know, I think first we got to realize how we're kind of suckered into a, a, a conversation about these issues that that is bound not to help us move forward. And one of the one of the places I see that most clearly is in um, the whole kind of white privilege industry and the way people talk about white privilege um, without without these complexities. And so you have predominantly white people who are economically privileged telling other white people, some of whom are not economically privileged, uh, that, that uh, you know, to, to um, think critically about their, about their own privilege, which is, a, you know, obviously a useful exercise. But, you know, I think about my own grandmother, uh, who's born poor uh, in Appalachia, in Kitzmiller, Maryland, in the, the mountains there. Uh, and the, the, the generations of people that my family lost to, to the coal mines. And I think, you know, do I, is my white privilege the same as her white privilege? Is her white privilege the same as the white privilege of Tim Wise or, you know, white people who are getting rich talking about race? And uh, and obviously it's not. And so I think we have to look at those complexities. And I, I have to think about how, you know, my own socialization growing up as a product of a working class father from urban Detroit and a and a mother who's from low income Appalachia rural area. Um, you know, how I in that context was socialized to believe that, that I had more in common with wealthy white people than I had with uh, poor white people and that I had in fact more in common with wealthy white people than I had with people of color in my mm. own economic bracket and uh, you know and in, in essence even as a working class white person I feel like I was sort of trained to be the buffer uh, for uh, to protect uh, uh, wealthy the interests of wealthy white people and so I think the first thing that needs to happen is for, is to come for working class uh, and middle class white people to come to an understanding of that, um, how we're being used and basically screwed over uh, uh, sort of at, at the same time uh, when we actually have a lot more in common with poor people of all racial identities than we do with with the wealthy white establishment. Mm -hmm. And Ivory, um, you know, one of the themes, and I, I want to kind of one of the umbrellas of the, the themes that permeate Deborah's book is about, you know, education and what just defining education and what it really should be for all of our children, uh, regardless of where they come from um, and, and um, regardless of their, their backgrounds. And that's something that you touch on a lot in your work, Ivory, you know, just talking about, 
um, you know, just, just treatment of our children and, and what should education be and what should it look like? Uh, will you just talk about that? What is education and what should it really be for all of our kids? Yeah, well, education should be something that prepares kids for a bright future. So it should be something that helps them to uh, understand themselves and their position in life. It should help them to understand about how the world works. I uh, should be able to spark their interest in a variety of different things, uh, help them to uh, understand uh, uh, social responsibility, um, the way that uh, the government works, their history. Uh, and so there's a, a lot of objectives to education. Um, and there are lots of debates right now as to whether or not education is achieving those objectives. Uh, and uh, pertinent to this conversation, uh, there's uh, conversations about whether or not education treats certain people uh, differently based on race. Uh, there's, uh, there's a history to this, to this nation that has been written by a select group of people and has been written based on their own perspective. And so one of the examples that I write about uh, is the example of, of General Carson uh, versus General Andrew Jackson. Uh, so uh, everyone knows who General Andrew Jackson is. Uh, he became president of the United States but before he was president. Uh, he was uh, a general uh, in the early 1800s uh, that was charged with uh, doing a reconnaissance mission of Florida uh, because they ha there were a lot of escaped Africans uh, in that region. It was a Spanish-occupied territory. Uh, there were um, uh, there were Africans who escaped slavery, uh, went to Florida, uh, and established colonies there, and had cooperative relationships with Seminole tribes. Uh, they had uh, taken over an outpost that had been abandoned by uh, the British after the War of 1812. And so they, they not only defended their post, uh, but they also helped other uh, Africans to escape, to escape slavery. Uh, and they, they, were, they also served as an enticement uh, to leave slavery uh, because if you were in Georgia and South Carolina uh, and you knew that freedom was only a, a, state, of, a state away, uh, that was more of a motivation to uh, try to escape slavery. And so there was uh, a battle that ensued between uh, Andrew Jackson and his troops uh, and the African slaves and, the, and their Seminole allies that was under the command of, of General Garson. Uh, and uh, General Garson uh, lost the final battle uh, after a hot shot uh, went to uh, their the artillery uh, from the from uh, uh, Andrew Jackson and you know the, the people from the United States, uh, and they ended up killing about 300 of these uh, black men who escaped uh, escaped into freedom and who was commanding their own destiny. Uh, now, as an African American uh, in school, I would have been rooting for uh, General Garson. And I would have been mm -hmm. proud to know and understand General Garson. And I would have seen uh, General Andrew Jackson more or less as a, the adversary. Uh, that would make me no less proud of the nation that I'm, I'm in right now. Uh, in fact, it would make me more proud to understand that 
uh, my people uh, had a had a stake in uh, the development of this land too, and that we were uh, fighting for our freedom. We weren't just passively uh, allowing others to control our own destiny. Uh, but schools today, um, uh, a lot of times, serves more as, as propaganda uh, than it does a genuine education that helps uh, kids to understand their own relevance. And that's just one of many examples of ways in which uh, history is distorted uh, and uh, present perspectives are also distorted in ways that make children disengaged from uh, the learning environment in school. Mm-hmm. That, that is so powerful. And, you know, this notion of, you know, this question about who controls the narrative and then on whom is that narrative imposed it comes up in your book, Deborah, when you talk about school reform and testing and accountability measures that have put in, been put in place and how um, the girls' school responded. Will you talk a little bit about that, that story um, in the book about you know, testing and its impact on the girls? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just building on what Ivory just said, I mean, if if education differs um, for different racial groups, which it obviously does, it also differs for different social class groups. And um, what I was trying to do in the class that I created for girls and uh, the Appalachian girls living in Cincinnati was give them what I felt like would be a class for the gifted, because one of the things that people sometimes mistakenly attribute to poor and working class white people is that they're just not as intelligent as as folks who are more affluent and have more opportunity and so forth. So I was trying to um, give girls who were growing up poor and white um, the opportunity to have a class for the gifted, kind of like the class that I would imagine that I would have wanted growing up. But um, instead, what happens, what is happening a lot in public schools serving the poor and working classes is that a culture, a rampant culture of testing and accountability is actually, in my view, at least making things um, worse for poor and working class kids because they have more difficulty, and, and I experience this in my own life, doing well on these standardized tests for all kinds of reasons, um, nothing to do with their basic intelligence, but just some of their experiences and some of their familiarity with certain kind of kinds of language and that sort of stuff. And in making the, the focus and the pressure in these um, school-serving poor and working-class kids passing these high-stakes tests, it actually makes it more difficult for teachers to really... Um, and focus on teaching um, at a higher level, doing some of the things that Irie was talking about, helping prepare kids for 21st century America, helping them engage in critical thinking and and things like that. So it actually, in, in my view, in my experience, working with kids and working in schools serving the poor, the culture of testing, although it might have the positive benefit of pointing out certain kinds of inequalities has the negative of actually making things worse for individual kids. Mm-hmm. Paul, you've been on the show before talking about the culture of poverty myth. Um, will you just explain what that is, the myth of the culture of poverty, and then 
talk a little bit about how we wrest control of the narrative from those who have written that narrative and, and given it to especially poor communities. Absolutely. And, and just kind of connecting this to that, to that issue about standardized tests, I mean, I, I think, first of all, the whole kind of school reform, uh, the whole neoliberal school reform machine, I think, is, is having devastating impacts on low-income low, low uh, students of all uh, races. Uh, and, you know, I, I, maybe I'm a little cynical, but, but I, I, and I, I think it's actually purposefully so. I, you know, the, the um, well, get, sticking with the, the culture of poverty myth, because it, this ties into it, the, the popular notion in the U.S. is, and this uh, is connected to uh, other myths like meritocracy or uh, sort of the way people conflate uh, democracy and capitalism. The culture of poverty myth uh, comes out of the work of Oscar Lewis, who was a social scientist and the, did his most prominent work in the 50s and 60s. And he studied a couple of small um, um, uh, communities, Mexican and Puerto Rican communities, and developed a list of, of cultural attributes uh, that he somehow projected from those two small studies as being cultural attributes of poor people. Um, and it, this, the, this notion was quickly adopted. It's been you know, transformed and used, such as in Ronald Reagan's uh, welfare queen uh, um, conversation and, and that sort of thing. But it's, it's basically the notion that uh, by virtue of being poor, uh, poor people share... Uh, a set of predictable and and common attitudes, beliefs, behaviors, uh, and and that sort of thing, and they're invariably negative. Uh, the the sort of biggest, most popular purveyor of this idea, the cultural poverty idea, now is Ruby Payne, and so it's the idea that, for instance, poor people are violent, poor people are substance abusers, poor people don't care about education. So it's this kind of list of stereotypes. Uh, most of which don't stand up to any kind of scrutiny. For instance, uh, in the U.S., wealthy people are actually more likely to be addicted to alcohol uh, than, than poor people are. Uh, research shows there's absolutely no difference between poor people and wealthier people in terms of the extent to which they value education or care about education or the lengths that, that parents will go to to ensure um, educational opportunity uh, for their kids g given uh, access and opportunity. Uh, and, uh, you know, the problem is this kind of fits with the overall narrative in the U.S., which is poor people are poor because of their own deficiencies and that their poverty in and of itself is the best evidence of those deficiencies because, uh, of course, in the U.S., the narrative goes anyone can achieve whatever they want if they just work hard enough. Um, of course, ask somebody like me whose family lost generations of, of men in their 50s uh, to uh, uh, diseases connected with the coal mines. You know, it's hard to convince somebody who's, you know, whose relatives worked, you know, 12-hour shifts in a coal mine that, that they just didn't work hard enough, and that's why they didn't, um, you know, that, that they didn't get out of the, the coal mines. Um, and so this, you know, this has to be really challenged because the problem is 
when we start imagining solutions for things like the economic achievement gap or, or graduation rates or those sorts of things, you know, we base the solutions we can imagine on the, the notion that we have of what the problem is. So if I think that the problem is uh, low-income families don't care about education, then, you know, the solutions I'll imagine will be about trying to convince poor families that they should care about education when that's not the problem. You know, the problem is a lack of access to, to equitable educational opportunity. And then if you step back, take a couple of steps back from that, then, you know, there are bigger societal conditions such as, I mean, for instance, if, if every uh, parent or guardian had access to living wage work, that would give them a lot more leisure time to spend you know, with with their kids and thinking about their kids' school. If every child had health care, that would help low-income students not miss um, more school than 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 wealthier students do. So, uh, so that's how critical it is. And and my my concern is that part of what we're being tricked into is in endorsing solutions that really have nothing to do with the problem. So, you know, the the uh, the uh, and, and this is the whole this is the whole um, current uh, um, school reform debate and it's and it's things unfortunately that are being supported by um, people who we would think would have a little more of a critical view of such things, including Obama and his administration, which is endorsing a lot of things that are harmful to uh, low income students and to all disenfranchised uh, students. Mm-hmm. Ivory, there, there is, there's certainly a need to focus on poverty and uh, students living in poverty, but there's also a danger, I think, in conflating race and class, and that, you know, that that seems to be really, um, it's happening, and I think it is happening in large part because the courts have have been really hurting us in that direction. And, you know, a lot of your work has been focused on the, the racial thread that is in uh, the educational inequities that we see and in debunking some of the racial myths that have been uh, built around boys and, and men of color. Will you talk about, you know, this, this um the, the danger in conflating race and class and some of the myths that are particular to black children? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there, there are a lot of, of problems that, uh, that seem to have more to do with poverty than they do with race. But there are also issues that are, that appear to be distinctly about, about race. And I, and I think that the issues that um, that seem to be more related to race confuses us a lot. You know, like we when we look at, at um, districts like Prince George's County, which is the most affluent district, uh, affluent, a predominantly black district in the United States, uh, but yet their test scores are low, and mm-hmm. so. A lot of people take this as evidence that, you know, even among the most affluent black people, uh, and even if you have some parity with income, black people still are are not doing well on tests. And depending on how much you believe in those tests, uh, a lot of times people 
assume all kinds of things about that, like even uh, affluent black value education as much as uh, affluent uh, white people or even poor white people. Uh, so so there's, a, a, there's been a lot of, of, um, of, of misstatements related to uh, those types of issues. Now, uh, just like Deborah pointed out, uh, there's a, a variety of different populations that don't test well uh, for a variety of different reasons. Uh, but what I have not seen is any evidence that the schools that have black people with means are deficient in other ways besides uh, these test scores. And there, there aren't any studies really that connect these test scores, particularly the ones that they're using, which are largely state examinations, uh, to any type of positive outcomes, including uh, college admissions or, or, um, or competitiveness persistence through college. Uh, so a lot of tests, particularly the state tests, um, can appear as, as artificial measures. But other things that uh, seem to be uniquely related to race uh, are suspensions. Uh, black kids are being suspended at rates that are um, much higher than any other group of kids. Um, black females are being suspended at rates that are higher than white males, uh, even though white males are arrested uh, more than black females are. So uh, outside of school, um, white males create seem to create more problems if we just look at arrest rates. But inside of school, uh, for some reason, Black females are are uh, seen as more of an issue in the school. Um, lack of college preparatory classes uh, inside the schools also seems to have a lot to do with with the racial composition of those schools. Uh, and generally, the racial composition of the teaching force is much different than the racial composition of the, the classrooms. And one of the, one of the research studies that, that I did looked at teachers, how, how perceptions of violence in the schools influence the teachers' attitudes and behaviors about the, the kids. And what I found in my study, looking at a large data set that was collected by uh, the Department of Justice, it was a school crime supplement, um, what I found in my analysis of the data is that when there's a high perception of violence at the school, teachers tend to treat black students in general with less empathy and respect, irrespective of their involvement in the particular violence. That doesn't happen for white kids. Uh, so teachers are by and large able to separate their white kids from uh, the overall perception of violence at the school. Uh, and, uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with the uh, misconceptions and the myths that get floated out there. There's a lot of researchers that have put out these stats, and the stats have become zombie statistics. Um, so I got the, that term from uh, a reporter at, at the BBC. Um, but a zombie statistic is when you have something like, you know, 10 years ago, Justice Policy Institute uh, did a research study that there were more black men in prison than in college. 
Uh, today we talk about that finding as if it was analyzed yesterday. Um, however, if you follow their same metric, and even the original authors of the report will concede to this, if you follow their same method today, you'll find about 600,000 more black men in college than prison. Uh, there was also a 10-year-old study uh, done by the U.S. Department of Justice. Uh, the author of that was uh, Thomas Bonzar, who said that if a child was born uh, in 2001, that he would, if a black child was born, black boy was born in 2001, he would have a one in three chance of going to prison. Now, at the time when he released the report, uh, these kids were only two years old, so it was highly speculative in, in nature. And uh, 12 years after the report was released, we've seen a dramatic reduction in crime among black kids, uh, not an increase. However, you still hear people saying that, uh, more black people say it than white people, that if a black boy was born today, that they would have a one in three chance of going to prison, which there's, today there is no scientific uh, support for that. And uh, throughout history, there hasn't been uh, any scientific support except for Thomas Bonzar's double decrement uh, life tables, which is a, a highly elusive measure uh, that didn't look at our present situation or our past, but was a, a, a very obscure projection into the future, a, a future that didn't pan out the way that he suggested. Uh, so we have a lot of these stats that get floated out there, then the, the media picks them up and uh, the media doesn't give any context or explanation, uh, and people just keep uh, saying it over and over. And one of the things that I found is that these stats are very, very stubborn. You know, people uh, who have incorporated these things into their, their general speech, um, when you tell them that it's wrong, uh, it's shocking to them, and even though they didn't get a lot of evidence to begin with to support it, uh, they want you to do the to repeat the method uh, step by step, play by play for them before they uh, don't believe it. Um, but these, all of these things trickle down into the classroom, and it makes uh, people perceive, uh, particularly young black males, as being more prone to violence. Uh, I think it was Paul that said that uh, if you create a solution based on the false premise, you create wrong solutions. Uh, so our solution to the achievement gap, by and large, uh, among black males uh, has been to install metal detectors and to have a, a more heightened, secure environment, uh, to have a tough-talking principal who may not have an education background but has a military corrections uh, background and, you know, who can tough talk and, and thump their chest and, and walk through the hall with a, a bat uh, when these kids need something that's similar to what white kids need, uh, and that's a nurturing environment, someone to treat them with respect, uh, exposure to a rigorous curriculum that includes house prep preparation uh, and access to the best equipment and the best qualified teachers who have a holistic understanding of, of education. Uh, and, and so, so there, there has been this conflation of a lot of racial elements in society that's led to uh, some disparate outcomes when we look at black students. 
So, um, Deborah, I want to build on that and talk about, you know, I think there are several themes in your book, and um, those themes really point focus back at the institutional barriers for uh, low-income children instead of, instead of, you know, as we've been talking about and as, as Ivory has framed, instead of pointing the finger at, at those children and those families who um, don't value education, who um, <clears throat> can't read and, and um, don't really care to, to know more about the world. Um, and in examining the institutional barriers for the girls in your book, you really you, uh, you talk about reading as you know, a necessary tool for providing access to the children, to the world, and exposure to the world. You talk about the, um, the communities where they live as dumping grounds, literal dumping grounds for factories and um, figurative dumping grounds where we've just discarded the people and, and, um, and their, their, um, their cultural um, heritage. Um, will you just talk a little bit more about that that examination of the institutions that are in place that are <clears throat> creating barriers to success for the children that you you dealt with. Yeah, I mean, um, it it seems obvious that there are huge um, inequalities in the educational system, and part of that is a funding issue, and part of it is an issue of how different groups of children, students are treated. And I agree completely with Paul that um, the, the rampant, um, the, the focus, you know, almost the sole focus on testing has just made things um, worse for, at least for the kids that I have um, observed and, and worked with. Um, I've never myself understood how it's supposed to be the case that doing ever more testing and, and raising the bar higher and higher is supposed to be addressing the structural inequalities in the educational system. I've never I've never been able to piece together the, the rationale for that argument because there's just a whole missing piece. How are you supposed to create opportunity and change for poor and working class children when there's so many structural things that they're facing? And... Um, you mentioned Allison, um, you know, just the issue of the neighborhood in which the students I taught in Cincinnati were growing up just had massive problems, starting with the loss of jobs and then the environmental pollution. There was um, there were different kinds of sewage and waste treatment centers all clustered in this one community, and it and it felt as though the city of Cincinnati was kind of dumping its its almost its waste management on the in the neighborhood that was lived in by these poor white people. So um, all of the different pieces were working against the students whom I taught and um, and then the educational system is part of that. So there's a lot of research and I, I'm pretty sure that Paul would be aware of this that suggests that education was always class-specific. You had different types of curricula that were offered to different types of students. And, um, and poor and working class 
kids like, you know, working class kids like me were given one kind of curriculum, we were expected to grow up and become other, you know, working class people. And so there's just a lot of deeply embedded historical structural problems with access to funding and access to opportunity and access to things like smaller class sizes and teachers who um, are just super qualified and, and excited to be teaching a particular group of students in a particular neighborhood, all kinds of things that make it very difficult for um, a poor white girl growing up in an urban Appalachian community in Cincinnati or a poor, you know, a, a low-income girl growing up in, in rural Appalachia, all kinds of things that make it difficult for her to really achieve full and equal opportunity in America. And I wish we could, instead of just um, focusing in in kind of um, a, an obsessive way and, in my view, a harmful way on just test scores and more testing and in reaching certain test scores focus on the big picture structural inequalities that make it very difficult for those students to achieve um, opportunity and access. And then I think we would be getting somewhere. Um, I, in my experience, teaching um, students like the ones I taught in Cincinnati and like, like the ones I'm working with now in my um, when I finished working in Cincinnati, I founded an educational initiative for Appalachian girls called PAGE, or Partnership for Appalachian Girls Education, and the students I see there can do everything if they're given opportunity and have the right kind of education. And that is where I would love to see our focus as a nation. So unfortunately, we only have about 10 minutes left, and, and Paul, I want to I wanna give you a totally loaded question and ask you to answer it in about two to three minutes. Uh, so the, the question is how, to, how can we really uh, make sure that we are teaching students and equipping students to work strategically and in parallel with one another within their respective communities um, and address race and class without promoting concepts of inherent superiority or inferiority? Well, I think we have to be honest with students about the, the history of, of um, discrimination and, and oppression and, and inequity. I, I think that's the only way to do it. I, I think the problem is when we work with, uh, you know, when uh, pe people who are trying to do this sort of thing with youth today, there's always a, this, this hesitance to be honest um, because they don't want to make things too uncomfortable or because you know, teachers are worried that um, they'll get complaints from parents or that, that administrators will think whatever they're doing is not on, not on the test and, and, and uh, that sort of thing. And so what, what ends up happening inevitably is that um, we end up with, with, uh, with these initiatives that really never get around to addressing the real issue. And so we have Taco Night and the International Festival and the and the uh, multicultural parade and those sorts of things. And, and we're not equipping um, many young people with, with, uh, with the tools to, to talk seriously about. And when I say this, I'm talking about 
youth from from privileged groups. I mean, part of the problem is, you know, youth of color and low income youth and uh, LGBTQ youth. They're already dealing with the discrimination and the oppression, right? So they're very capable of talking about it on average. Uh, but we have to learn how to do this in ways that's not all about protecting um, the feelings and the ignorance of people from from privileged groups. Uh, and and I and 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 I think ultimately that's the only good education for people in privileged groups. I, I don't think we're doing them any real service by pretending <coughs> that um, that their privilege doesn't exist or that that uh, we all just need to learn how to get along with each other and and, uh, and that sort of thing. I, I think that's that's really the only way to do it. Unfortunately. Um, Teachers are not being being prepared to to have those conversations. That's that's the the teacher accreditation process is, you know that that's not rewarded in the teacher accreditation uh, process, and and so uh, unfortunately I think that's that's sort of happening less and less. But I think that's that's the only way there. You know, having open conversation, challenging. Uh, challenging the the um, conflation of capitalism and democracy. I mean, in some ways, we'd have to rethink the whole way that we teach uh, the the curriculum and, and the subtle ways in which we support uh, the mythology of equal access and the mythology of meritocracy. So, Ivory, what are your thoughts? Can we do this? Can we give back the racial bribe and and truly form alliances to to address poverty? Is it possible? Oh, yes, I, I think it's possible. I, I think that if we remove propaganda, uh, use common sense, and teach in a way that is completely inclusive, uh, because you know I don't think that. Well, I think that education has a lot of propaganda in it. And I don't think that the way to counterbalance that is to create a new propaganda. So, uh, you know, there there are some people who uh, engage in Afrocentric education, and this isn't a slight on Afrocentric education, but sometimes they try to reverse the propaganda, and some of what they say is uh, completely accurate. Uh, either, uh, but you know, a lot of it is, is. But I think that if we taught everybody the truth and have a balanced view and take into account everybody's contribution without overselling or underselling anybody's contribution, uh, then then this could work. Uh, so you know, we need to open up control to a cross section of people and not just have it in control of a, a certain elite few. Well, I, I really wish we had more time. This has been a, a great conversation. I want to um, uh, implore the audience to take this as a beginning, take this as a, a first step in your work. We have a lot of educators and activists and advocates who do this work every day. Um, and just to think about these, these cross-racial and multiracial alliances that um, can help inform your work and inform your strategies to address inequity in education as you as you do your work. 
my guests have been Dr. Deborah Hicks, the author of The Road Out, A Teacher's Odyssey in Poor America. Dr. Ivory Toldson is the Deputy Director of the White House Initiative on Historically Black Colleges and university, Universities, and Dr. Paul Gorski is the author of Reaching and Teaching Students in Poverty, Strategies for, ensuring, for Erasing the Opportunity Gap. Thank you all so very much for being here. Thank you, Allison. Thank you. So I want to wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving. You are now officially certified know-it-alls about giving back the racial bribe. Remember to follow Know-It-All, the ABCs of Education on Blog Talk Radio. Follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter. Find ABC on Facebook and read my blog at allisonbrownconsulting.com. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week. Thank <laughs> you.